You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. In this next series, we're discussing landscape and ecology and thinking about how what we build relates to the natural world around us. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. Today, our podcast is taking a mini break away from buildings and cities and heading out into the wilderness to bask in some nature. People are quite taken aback by the figure that 70% of of land in the UK is farmland and only 10% is, is urban. Because I think people are, who, particularly who live in cities, we think that the whole of the UK has been concreted over, that uh, urban development and sprawl is the major threat to the um, natural world still. And we also probably need to take more of an eye to how actually nowadays the major driver of habitat loss and of species loss in the UK has been agriculture and industrial agriculture. We have done a lot to destroy many of the habitats and species that we once had in our previously green and pleasant land. Our guest today is Guy Shrubsole, author of Who Owns England? Guy has recently taken on a new role as Policy and Campaigns Coordinator at Rewilding Britain. Before we speak to Guy, we'll do a quick roundup of recent sustainable design news. ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, recently launched a natural materials group whose ambition is to mainstream natural materials by putting together a concise database with information about different materials all in one place with consistent data about U-values, embodied carbons, cost per meter squared, all presented in a comparable format. George, you attended the launch. What did you think? Yes, it was it was really interesting, and I think it's it's going to be very useful because at the moment, if you're wanting to specify something like Kingspan, there's all the information on their website about how it all fits together and exactly what you need to do. That it's it's a lot harder to find that information about natural materials. So what the group is doing at the moment is gathering and it's going to collate and format information and uh, even make some standard details uh, and then got into disseminating this knowledge so it should hopefully be just as easy to specify um, sustainable materials as it is for like, big commercial industrial chemical kind of products so yeah that's that's great i had a quick chat with jana lan lomas one of the group's coordinators And she explained that the main challenge is not that the information doesn't exist, but that it's not formatted and presented consistently, which makes it difficult to compare like with like. Aiken's Natural Materials Group has a large and quite active WhatsApp group and meets regularly on Thursday evenings. Anyone is welcome to join. To get in touch, email naturalmaterials at architectscan.org. Another launch was by Architecture Practice Orms, who has just released an open source methodology for using materials passports on existing buildings. 
Its ambition is to catalog all the materials in any retrofit project so that they can be either reused on site or salvaged for use on another project. Supported by Grosvenor Estate and with input from Elliot Wood and Arup, the aim is to shift industry mindsets from demolition and focus instead on deconstruction. Existing buildings need to be viewed as material banks. The project includes an open source database that can be used as a cross-industry collaborative design tool. It's early days and ORMS has released a beta version and they're looking for collaborators to use and test it. This reminds me of three years ago when I chaired an event for Hawkins Brown when they launched their HBERT embodied carbon tool. It was still fairly early days for architects thinking about embodied carbon. And now, three years on, it's firmly on the profession's radar. This needs to happen with reuse of building materials. We'll put a link to the ORMS report in the episode show notes. What else have you come across, George? Well, I did see quite a lot of opposition to the planning reform bill that the government had in its Queen's speech. It's not been published yet. What we do know is that it's part of their move towards a more zonal planning system away from the current discretionary planning system. So, yeah, I was, I was a bit surprised to see so many architects going into bat for the planning system as it stands when most housing is just field by field extensions to existing settlements of PLC house builders, standard types proliferating around, uh, arranged around the refuse vehicles, turning circles. At the moment, there's not enough housing, it's in the wrong place, and it's of terrible quality. So I can understand why there's appetite to reform the planning system. And one further news item for this episode. Many listeners will be aware that RIBA Council has approved the introduction of mandatory competences for UK chartered members as part of its new education and professional development framework. Climate literacy is proposed as a mandatory competence alongside health and safety and ethical practice. This is important because in order to renew membership from 2024, UK chartered members will need to demonstrate their ability to design buildings that meet the RIBA 2030 climate challenge. The RIBA is seeking feedback on these mandatory competences through an online survey open until June 17th. I've just completed it, and it literally takes five minutes, a bit longer if you have a close look at the subject areas spelled out in the proposed climate literacy knowledge schedule. Please do have a careful look at this. It looks pretty comprehensive to me, though I did recommend that the term building performance evaluation be substituted for post-occupancy evaluation, because this should be planned for from the outset of a project. I also recommended a greater emphasis on landscape generally in line with this series of podcast episodes. Check the show notes for details and please do complete the survey. This is an important and overdue step by the RIBA and we need to show broad interest and buy-in. Guy, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. You're our first guest in a new series devoted to landscape, a subject where architects too often have a blind spot. 
There's been an enormous surge of awareness and activism about climate emergency amongst built environment professionals in the last couple of years with the founding of two networks, Architects Declare, AD, and ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network. Both AD and ACAN have put the ecological crisis and biodiversity loss at the heart of their campaigns. So it's about much more than the built environment, but bringing landscape and ecological considerations and expertise into a project from the outset rarely happens. Part of this is the way architects are educated. Part of this is awareness. Part of this is a client's unwillingness to take on a full consultant team early in the design process. And we really need to crack this. So in your 2019 book, Who Owns England? It's a remarkable feat of investigative journalism with some fascinating revelations. Thinking about land, who does own England? William conquered England in 1066 and gave all the land out to his mates. How much of this aristocratic land ownership persists today? Yes, well, thank you very much for having me on, Hattie. And who owns England, I think, is a fascinating question. And um, what I found through doing research for my book was that it's very hard to find out the answer to that question these days. Uh, And the answer is buried in the land registry for England and Wales, which is the government's official registrar of land ownership. But that's a closed book to the majority of the public. You have to pay £3 to find out who owns a single field or land parcel. And that may not sound like very much, but when you realise that there's 24 million land titles registered with the land registry, that would be something like £72 million to buy all of them to find out who owns everything, which is not the sort of money I had down the back of the sofa when I started writing this book. Roughly um, 1% of the population of England own about half of all the land. And how that breaks down a little bit more is roughly a third or 30% of land in England, by my reckoning, is still owned by the aristocracy and gentry, land that's ultimately inherited down through the generations. Perhaps another 18% is owned by what one might call sort of newer money, money that has been made since the Industrial Revolution or in the 20th century and 21st centuries and has come into acquiring land more recently. That might include people who work in the city or people like James Dyson, who's become a very large owner of land in recent years. And then you start to look at other organisations. So the Crown and Church are, of course, major landowners, although much less so than they once were. They're sort of only a few percent of land that they own. But the royal family, of course, a small number of individuals. The Church of England, in some ways, much less of a powerful organisation than it once was in the Middle Ages and, and the Victorian period, but still a very major landowner. And then there are a range of organisations, some of whom have come into existence in much more recent times, that have come to acquire quite a lot of land, particularly companies who own about uh, 18% of land in England nowadays. And then you have some of the other organisations like the National Trust, probably owns only about 2% of England. Started to get me asking questions about inequality of land ownership in the country. We're often sort of talked about as being a property-owning democracy, uh, a country in which there's uh, widespread home ownership and so on. And that's true um, to some extent. Obviously, there are many people who don't own a home, but even those who are homeowners, actually the total area of land that amounts to, even including things like large back gardens, probably only adds up to about 5% of England. So you can see that actually 
all of the homeowners in England are vastly outweighed in terms of the land that they own by a small number of aristocracy, landed gentry and so on. So there's a very unequal distribution of land in England today. Another of your conclusions is that approximately 70% of England is agricultural land, a mere 20% set aside for nature, and about 10% in our towns and cities. In light of this, how important is greening the built environment, and what role do you think design professionals can play? Yeah, well, I think that greening the built environment is very important. Reducing carbon emissions uh, from shops and residential areas and and, uh, council offices and so on. I think it's very important that we have more uh, inbuilt renewables, that we have better design standards, that we have better insulated homes. We've got a very leaky housing stock in the UK compared to some countries. But in terms of integrating nature into the built environment is clearly crucial as well. We need, we've seen the impact COVID has had on our kind of ability to access the outdoors and the inequalities, including, uh, you know, ethnic and racial disparities in terms of who has access to gardens in our cities. And obviously people are having to make use of public green space. We're very lucky in some ways to have quite large green spaces in some of our cities, you know, thanks to the wisdom of, uh, of, of previous generations like Octavia Hill and others uh, like her who campaigned to preserve commons and green spaces and, and public parks. But I think we need to think about providing more of them in future. Perhaps start asking questions about how land is used in cities, whether it's necessarily the right thing to have quite so many golf courses in municipal areas, for example, whether they could be used by a wider section of the population by being turned into at least temporary parks when we have emergencies like covid or more permanently, like some parks have started to be turned into in in, uh, South London. I think there's an example in Lewisham, which is uh, quite encouraging. I think we probably are not very land literate as a nation. We don't really have a sense of how our land is used. Often, I think people are quite taken aback by the figure that 70% of of land in the UK is farmland and only 10% is, is urban. Because I think people are, who, particularly who live in cities, and, and I lived in London for eight years and, and sort of got into this mindset as well, which is that we think that the whole of the UK has been concreted over, that uh, urban development and sprawl is the major threat to the um, natural world still. And of course, of course, we absolutely need to have a check on urban sprawl. We need to continue to have things like green belt designations and sensible planning constraints on, on how on where development happens. But I think we also probably need to take more of an eye to how, as the State of Nature reports over the years have concluded, that actually nowadays the major driver of habitat loss and of species loss in the UK has been agriculture and industrial agriculture. So we do need to get to grips with that and sort of not just imagine that when we see a nice lawn or you know a nice green hillside that all is necessarily well uh, in the countryside, that it goes a lot deeper than that. We have done a lot to destroy many of the habitats and species that we once had in our previously green and pleasant land. Because there's an idea of a stewardship of rural land, this kind of 90% of the country, of maintaining it for future generations. But all the incentives for landowners are to squeeze as much profit from the land as possible uh, with intensive farming or grouse shooting or having it notionally productive so they can milk the farm subsidy system. So how does this play out for the climate and ecological breakdown? And what can we do about it? Yeah, absolutely. Very good question. And, and, and I think that, that whilst there have been some changes to the farm subsidy system in recent decades, there's been an attempt by the EU when we were part of it to, to green the common agricultural policy, to green farm subsidies. 
it was really only quite piecemeal around the edges tinkering and clearly hadn't been enough to arrest the decline of species that we've seen. We've seen, like, you know, 56% of farmland birds have been lost since 1970, for example. We've seen crashes in even common uh, species like hedgehogs, for example, over the last uh, 20 years. And, um, you know, to be able to kind of tackle this, I think we have to have a root and branch reform of farm payments, for example. We've been promised that as a result of Brexit. We're still waiting for the final details, really, of the future farm payments regime that will, will really start to kick in in 2024. And this was a process that was started by Michael Gove when he was Secretary of State for the Environment. Um, with great fanfare, uh, and, and, and I think we welcomed, you know, environmentalists largely welcomed some of the changes that were being talked about by the government then, which looked to be moving to a system of uh, so-called public money for public goods. That's public goods that are essentially things like protecting the environment, natural flood defences, restoration of habitats that have been lost and so on. And all of those obviously contributing towards helping resolve some of those huge public challenges that we face, such as the climate crisis and the, the nature emergency. But I think what's slightly worrying now, although we have Brexited, we have an agriculture bill that sets in, in train a new set of farm subsidy payments in for future, we still don't know the actual details of the, those payments. We don't know the design of the schemes. They're still uh, mired in tests and trials. And more worrying things have started to emerge more recently from the Department of the Environment, from DEFRA, who is in charge of these, these new payments. Uh, that, that look dangerously like potentially sliding backwards to a, an older system where people are essentially farmers and land managers potentially could be paid simply for complying with the law and not very much more. And that's obviously what we want to avoid. I think it's this is a really important opportunity to seize, which is to reform our fund payments fundamentally. And that would encourage, you know, if done right, could encourage not just uh, greener farming, but also rewilding at a landscape scale. And so we hope to see that in future and that this moment isn't lost and that we don't see backsliding to something that has clearly failed us in the past. You also reveal in your book some interesting statistics about the amount of land in the public sector. I think it's something like 8.5% and how it's being flogged off for short-term capital receipts without any long-term vision. That would include, say, network rail sites like King's Cross, Transport for London sites. What's your take on that? How can we tackle that? Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, and there has been a big uh, loss in public sector land. But I think there's, there's one other thing I would say, which is that um, we've got an environment bill uh, that is coming back to Parliament shortly. That's meant to be setting up a whole series of new local nature recovery strategies. And obviously, it'll, it'll be down to local authorities to deliver on these. And one of the things that is obviously in the gift of local authorities to be able to do is to use their own land for nature in a better way. And a lot of local authorities have things like local nature reserves, country parks, and other areas where greater priority is given to habitats and nature. But I think we're going to need to see far more activism on the part of local authorities to really connect up some of these sites that they own, with other land that they currently own but maybe don't manage for nature, with other farmers, with private landowners and with other parts of the public sector. So I think it would be very short-sighted for, for local authorities to continue to sell off their land and their estates. They're obviously being pushed to do so as a result of central government austerity over the last decade um, and that's accelerated sales. But I think 
seeing some of the new obligations that are starting to come for local authorities to have to follow in terms of the Climate Change Act, getting to net zero and starting to deliver this national nature recovery network, they'd be doing a good service to everyone if they kept hold of their land and just managed it differently. After several years at Friends of the Earth, you've taken on a new role as policy and campaigns coordinator for Rewilding Britain. We might have ideas about rewilding as being like that town Pripyat near Chernobyl that got overrun with trees everywhere after all the people left, or about reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone National Park. But what is rewilding in a UK context? Yes, well, I should say, first of all, rewilding is very much about people. It's often seen as the exclusion of people, and I think wrongly. Rewilding is about us people taking a renewed interest in how nature works, how natural processes are vital to be restored to the environment and doing our utmost to restore them in in places where it's best and appropriate to do so. For example, I mean, everyone's familiar with um, the Nepa State in Sussex, I'm sure. When when we hear about rewilding, we often hear about that. That's an example of natural processes being slowly restored to what was previously an arable farm, insofar as it's gone from being arable to being uh, pasture, but it's not just pasture, it's gone to being the reintroduction of rare breed cattle and um, Tamworth pigs uh, and other species who are able to start to mimic some of the natural processes that would have previously existed in this environment. Some of this it can be quite close to traditional conservation methods, conservation grazing and so on. In other places, it starts to look like the reintroduction of species that have been lost for a very long time. So beavers, for example, or storks, wild boar um, that perform sort of quite important roles, keystone roles indeed, in some habitats. So for example, our our rivers have been missing beavers for the last 400 years and we start to wonder why we get flooding so much. And some of it's driven by poor uh, planning, you know, concreting over of front gardens and so on. Some of it's driven by the canalisation of rivers rather than allowing them to meander, which is another natural process which we need to restore. And some of it's starting to be driven by climate change. But actually, one of the reasons why we perhaps are getting quite so much flooding these days is we just don't allow rivers to become natural habitats, natural environments. So we're not allowing them to flow in the right way. We're not allowing them to the water that flows into them to be retained upstream. And one of the ways in which we can help rivers to retain more water is to reintroduce the missing keystone species of beavers. They build dams uh, far more efficiently than we do. Those dams create ponds, areas that flood upstream uh, in small ways, but that means that there's flooding upstream in fields or in muddy areas, muddy patches of fields which aren't very productive anyway, rather than necessarily leading to floods in our front rooms. So, you know, this is one of those things where it's about restoring natural processes and rewilding is one way in which we should be doing that. Um, and uh, restoring people indeed to the, to the landscape. There's a project called the Bunloit Estate up in Scotland. Um, Scotland historically has suffered from the depeopling of the landscape, the enclosure of many upland areas in the highlands and islands where people were taken out of the landscape and replaced with um, things like sheep, the cheviot sheep and deer and grouse. And actually what um, some of the rewilding projects in Scotland are seeking to do is not just restore the wilderness and the wildness to the landscape, but also restore more of the people who are actually able to do some of the work of conservation, tourism, rebuilding some of these uh, lost and fragmented habitats. And in terms of what it looks like, how much tree cover do you get? And is it different in different places? And how does this relate to carbon storage and also the, the carbon that's stored in peat? 
Yeah, absolutely. So natural regeneration of trees and the restoration of peat are both vital for helping the UK get to net zero and indeed go beyond, ultimately go carbon negative and draw more more and more CO2 out of the atmosphere as we need to do to really get back on on track in terms of climate change and, and, and restoring the climate. And natural regeneration is obviously one of the ways in which trees have grown and seeded themselves uh, since time began. We think of increasing tree cover nowadays as being synonymous with planting trees, I think. Um, that's come about as a result of a century of modern forestry practices and I think a well-meaning uh, drive to kind of plant more trees, thinking back to things like the 1970s when there was plant a tree in 73 and I think it all started to kind of there where we, we kind of thought that it's our civic duty to go out, plant a nice little sapling, probably sheath it in plastic as we do nowadays so that it doesn't get nibbled by sheep or livestock and that's how they grow nowadays. Um, that's obviously not the case uh, everywhere. <laughs> In fact, for most of history, it hasn't been the case. When I was at Friends of the Earth, a lot of the time was spent talking about having the right tree in the right place. And that means planting the right tree in the right place because humans don't necessarily know where the right tree is in the right places. But if we allow, allow nature to actually decide that, if we allow natural regeneration to happen, we're more likely to get the right tree in the right place because that's where that tree wants to grow and is able to grow. Now, obviously, it's not as just as simple as that. We do need to have, again, some intervention. We need to change the way in which we act as people. We can't just abandon things and expect nature to spring back in as much diversity as we necessarily want it to, because we've already wrecked the habitats in many places. So one thing we need to do is clearly reduce grazing in places where we want to see more natural regeneration. Uh, it doesn't mean completely re eliminate grazing or take it away it just means reducing it or having different sorts of livestock perhaps grazing those areas we certainly have too many deer in some parts of the uk as a result of releasing them for sport in past uh, decades and we certainly have areas that are overgrazed for livestock but if we were allowed to, uh, to, to just slacken off a little we, we start to see some very dramatic results so there's a wonderful place um, not so far from where i live called lustly cleave which is a common and it's become grazed less and less over the last few decades. And actually, it's completely regenerated with trees and not just any trees. These are wonderful oak trees, birch trees, and they've started to become a temperate rainforest because they are in an area where temperate rainforest grows. Lots of mosses and lichens grow on the branches of these trees. And we're starting to see that spread and regenerate. So it's a wonderful example, I think, of when we don't need to necessarily intervene to the extent of planting the trees in the ground for there to be regeneration of woodland and an increasing tree cover. And of course, all of this, uh, both increasing tree cover through natural regeneration and restoring our peat bogs, which are huge carbon sinks, will do a huge amount to help with getting to net zero and tackling climate change. There's potentially tens of millions of tonnes could be locked up every year if we started to deploy these natural climate solutions at scale. We don't need to necessarily invest in new techno fixes when we've got so many tried and tested fixes in the form of natural climate solutions. The, the humble tree, the peat bog, these are things that we need to be restoring and rejuvenating and deploying at scale to solve the climate crisis. The government has just announced the next tranche of funding through its urban tree fund. What do you make of that? Again, it's, it's brilliant to be having more trees in urban areas, more trees in our cities. We just need to make sure that that's accompanied also by allowing the establishment of, of woodlands at scale and scrub at scale in other parts of our country as well. I think it brings us back to that question of 10% of land being urban, 70% being farmland. 
And just because the we've been waiting for ages for the government to announce something on trees to lap it up at the first opportunity and that's job done, we really, we really need to kind of scrutinise what the government does in its forthcoming England tree strategy and just be clear about the sheer scale of the problem that we face. The amount of land that is potentially suitable for allowing trees to, to, to regenerate on and to be planted on in some cases and assess what the government is doing against that. You know, that his, you know the potential is, is quite vast. You could double tree cover in England without impacting on other habitats or productive farmland. But what the government is, I suspect, likely to propose will fall somewhat short of that. That's really interesting. Well, this relates to the next question, which is that architects need sustainable materials to build from and timber together with timber products like wood fiber insulation and various boards are a big part of this. So do you see a tension between the need to harvest timber and promoting woodlands as habitats for biodiversity? There could be a tension if we just try to do only one of those or only the other one. And I think what is vital is that we need to be doing more of both. And it's clear that there is, of course, space and, and a need to have more sustainable timber production. I think the stat is that the UK is possibly the second largest importer of wood products in the world after China. We're very unself-sufficient when it comes to timber and, and wood. And, you know, that, that is in some ways unsurprising, given that we only have 13% woodland cover in the UK. And so there's clearly a need to expand that. Some of that should be an expansion for sustainably managed timber. But I think also some of it should be for woodland that's just left to grow forever. People often talk about timber and wood products is inevitably leading to being long-term carbon sinks. And I think that they can be when they're used for long-term uh, construction and sustainable construction. And that's brilliant. And we do need to encourage that a lot more. Unfortunately, there is also a lot of uh, a lot of wood products are very short-lived as well. You know, pulp and paper, pallets and fencing and so on, that doesn't necessarily last forever. So actually, if you're chopping down a tree and turning it into that, it's not necessarily going to be a long-term carbon store. Uh, so we should be careful and wary of people over-claiming in the forestry industry that this is inevitably going to be good for the climate. It, it might be it might be good in some circumstances where it's used for construction and thought about sensibly. It might actually be potentially very bad in other circumstances. And I think we need to think very carefully about that and, and make sure that actually we're talking about long-term carbon sinks, which forests that are left to grow forever are also very good carbon sinks and they're also very secure carbon sinks. They last for a very long time. There's a received wisdom that the Lake District, say, or much of the Scottish Highlands are wild natural beauty, but the reality is they're shaved almost bald by overgrazing. A hundred years ago, a lot of Norway was in the same boat, but since their natural regeneration has restored a lot of the natural environments. Uh, I went camping in Norway for my honeymoon a few years ago, and seeing the incredible richness of the environments in places like Rondana really shows you that in comparison, most of upland Britain is just a, a wet desert. So how do we deal with the idea of what people expect these places to, to look like? Mm, I'd love to go to Norway. I've heard great things about how yeah, the uplands in Norway compare so much more favourably than, than our denuded uplands here in, in, in Britain. This whole thing about shifting baselines and how people perceive nature uh, and, our, and our green and pleasant lands or the, the Scottish Highlands as, as being uh, you know, wild and, and natural. 
Um, I think actually an increasing number of people are probably seeing through that nowadays. And actually now every time a National Park Authority or Country File posts a tweet saying, look at this lovely landscape, usually with a sheep in it and not very much else, um, you sort of get a pile-on on Twitter. Uh, this may be only the bubble of Twitter, of course, in which you get a pile-on on Twitter of ecologists and, and other people going, this is outrageous, of course it's not wild, you know, we need to be having far more trees or far more restored peat bogs and so on. So I think actually there might be an increasing number of people who have started to see that. And there's this great quote from the conservationist Aldo Leopold, which is that ecologists see a world of wounds. It's a real way to ruin a good walk is to start to see the desolation in the landscape or the devastation in the landscape. But I think it's an important part of how we become more ecologically literate as, as a society. That's really interesting. I, I love this concept of ecological literacy. So coming to planning as a mechanism for addressing some of this, the government held a consultation on biodiversity net gain in 2018, and some local authorities have already made this a condition of planning consent. Is this an effective tool, do you think? Well, it's a very interesting area. I think it is potentially fraught with risks. We hear a lot about carbon offsetting. I guess this we're increasingly hearing about potential for biodiversity offsetting and net gain is perhaps one way in which that might be uh, seen as taking place. It's not possible to necessarily recreate many of the habitats that could be lost through development. You know, we're seeing that with HS2 currently. You can't simply recreate an ancient woodland overnight. Um, takes 400 years at least to grow. So, so there's a concern that I have that anything that makes it appear possible to developers or councils or, or, the, or the government that we can simply offset this problem by setting up something else elsewhere, I, I, I get worried by that. Um, I think even more interestingly is some work that's been done recently by some academics um, and someone called uh, a researcher, a brilliant researcher called Sofa Ermgassen, who's been looking at empirically at the results of net gain by these uh, councils who you referred to as, as being pioneers of it and have, who have started to incorporate net gain into their local plans and, and planning decisions rather. And actually what he has discovered is that the majority of developers appear to be going for on-site uh, landscaping. And whilst that's good from a kind of creating a nice place to live, you know, maybe some better landscaping, some more trees in and amongst housing developments and so on, it's not actually that great from a point of view of biodiversity net gain because it's not leading to the creation of new habitat elsewhere or the improvement of habitat. So actually what he discovered was that there is actually still a net loss of habitat going on despite these proposals being in place. So there's clearly a lot that needs to be done to resolve this, a lot that needs to be tweaked or, or amended around the governance of, of net gain for it to work properly. And you know it, it could be that it, in the future it's an important tool to help incentivise habitat restoration and rewilding. But I think at the moment, a lot more work does need to be done to reassure everyone that it's not going to lead to negative outcomes for the environment. That leads directly to my next question, which is at the scale of an individual project, say an architect working on a big master planning scheme, what can you do to get more wilderness into our lives? or even at the scale of an individual house project? I mean, I think there's absolutely more that could be done to um, incorporate green space, trees, uh, wildflowers, landscaping into, into projects. 
there's always going to be a limit to how much wildness we can really get in our cities. There's absolutely scope for more plants, more uh, rainwater gardens, more uh, wonderful parks, more green walls, more green roofs, all of those sorts of things. I think that also, though, obviously, we do need to look again to this sort of the wider landscape and are we creating, for example, are we doing more to wild the green belt? If we can't necessarily completely transform our, our cities to be thriving habitats, can we at least do more on the doorsteps of our cities by doing more to wild the green belt? So there's this you know, concept of wild belt that the wildlife trusts have been pushing which would be a new planning designation, a kind of souped up green belt, uh, an area where it's not just not developed, but it's actively restored to ecological health. And I think that's a really fascinating idea. And, and of course, we need to do more to, you know, green that green belt, because it, if it is simply just a kind of uh, really no better than the landscape at large, or, or in some cases worse, you know, a kind of mixture of golf courses and pony paddocks and collections of tyres being left in fields, then uh, I don't think it's really serving its original purpose or the purpose that it needs to serve in the 21st century, really. I want to change tax a little bit because we've been asking our different guests about their own personal journey towards being really focused on, on, on these environmental issues. And another important aspect of land use is transport infrastructure. And in your book, you, you describe the formative impact of your parents taking you to a demonstration against the Newbury Bypass, which today is part of the A34. Were there other key markers along your path that led you into environmental activism and now specifically to rewilding? Yes, sure. Um, yeah, well, that, that was a big uh, moment for me was, yeah, and absolutely. My parents, they, they set up a local Friends of the Earth group back in the uh, in the 1970s in Newbury. And I think in that respect, I've not rebelled against them at all. I've definitely shared their views on all of that. And I, I, I have a huge amount to, uh, that I owe them on that. Um, but I guess other things that really sparked my concern about climate change and the damage we're doing to the world. I mean, wh one of the key moments for me was the um, Glen Eagle Summit, the G8 Summit in 2005. I went up to just simply go on the Make Poverty History March that was uh, taking place in the city at the time. But then I ended up going along to a talk about climate change in a, in a big seminar room that was being held as part of the Alternative G8 Summit, which was sort of activist and NGO groups alongside uh, the formal G8. And I remember George Monbiot speaking there and, you know, he absolutely electrified the audience. He's just a fantastic orator. So that and the whole experience of that week made me realise um, that I wanted to spend my life doing stuff on climate change, doing stuff to try and fix um, the mess we've gotten ourselves into yeah, with the environment. And um, that was also the moment at which um, Friends of the Earth were doing their big arse campaign against uh, uh, to, to call for the, uh, the Climate Change Act. And I think that was, for, for a long time, climate change was my overriding concern and, and sort of guided where I wanted to try and do and what I wanted to campaign on. But I think, like a lot of people, I've sort of tried to kind of blot out some of the horrendous bad news stories about the biodiversity crisis that is also enveloping us, uh, you know, we, the, the absolutely cataclysmic collapse in some species that we're un, unravelling the web of life, really. I, I guess I'd sort of not wanted to try and look that in the face, really. And then I think a couple of years ago, I felt, well, actually, things are improving on the climate change front in this country, I would say. It's not that we've solved everything by any means, but there are so many people now campaigning on this. It's It's been so fantastic to see you know, XR and Greta 
and everyone who's been inspired by them um, step up. And I think there is a much wider understanding and concern about that now. I would say there is still a chasm, though, between our, our, our watching of nature documentaries and our, and our action to, to tackle that crisis. And, and David Attenborough is, is doing his, his damnedest now to, to, to you know, include in everything that he does concern, you know, in spark concern for the natural world. But I, I really think there is a lot more to we need to do to put nature on the agenda. And that's why I wanted to start working on rewilding and, and work for rewilding Britain. You're doing a campaign about the freedom to roam for England, which many places like Scotland or the Czech Republic have already. But here the government is looking to criminalise any trespass. Uh, so, yeah, what's what's that about? Yes, so I, I, I'm involved in a, in a personal campaign working with my friend Nick Hayes, who's uh, written a very good book called The Book of Trespass. So if, if you're interested in books about access and being naughty and trespassing, then I'd recommend reading his book as well. Um, essentially, it's about public access to nature. And we have a right to roam in England and Wales, but it was brought in 20 years ago. Uh, and it actually only covers a small percentage of the land. It only covers about 8% of England. And a lot of those landscapes that we have a right to roam over are also quite remote from where most people live. So I think this, again, this brings us back to sort of the point about the green belt or about um, woodlands and, and rivers. These are habitats and areas of land that would be much closer to and are much closer to where most people live, but we don't really have, currently have great access to them. So, you know, it's quite astonishing that we don't have, that 97% of all rivers in Britain are, don't have a right of navigation on them or, or uncertain rights of navigation on them, meaning you can't kayak or paddle down them without getting into fights with, you know, anglers or the farmers and landowners. So, you know, I think that's something where... There really should be, particularly if this government wants to build back better in their terms from COVID and they want to um, improve people's health as well and, you know, get more into kind of preventative medicine, uh, you know, be, being fitter and healthier. We need to be getting outdoors more. We need to be reconnecting with nature. And that's good for mental health as well as for physical health. So I, I would say that these things fit together because I, I do think that the more that people experience nature and its wonders, the more that people do care for it and uh, will care enough to take action to preserve it. And so for me, having access and greater public access to nature is, is part and parcel of helping to protect it in future. Nature's given a lot of people a lot of solace during lockdown. And you've talked about a wild belt and, and getting more nature to where people live. Do parks also need to change? Do councils need to relax about cutting back the undergrowth and let some areas of parks rewild? Yes, I think so. I think they should. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this, um, I think Plant Life, uh, the NGO's Plant Life has, has got this uh, campaign on at the moment, No Mo May, I think it's called, and basically urging councils or, or anyone who's got uh, you know, a lawn or, or, or responsibility for mowing to just to give it a rest for a bit, just to see the wildflowers flourish. Um, you know, I, I, it was something that I thought was amazing during lockdown was all the rebel botanists who started chalking the names of wildflowers and common weeds onto pavements to try and, you know, again, this part of this ecological literacy of, of trying to educate us, all of us, ourselves, about what is around us and, and not seeing something as simply a weed that needs to be weeded out, or but as something that's also a food source for, you know, an insect or, a, you know, part of the ecosystem. So, yes, I think that's right. And I think actually there might be some evidence. I, I, I would struggle to put my finger on it immediately, but I'm sure I've seen some studies that have been done also looking at people's well-being and mental health being improved the more biodiverse the environment is. So it's not just having access to a green lawn, 
but actually a high quality green space, a space that in which those natural processes are being allowed to come back in to some extent, where we are seeing a diversity of species, where people are, you know, people don't just see a robin, but they see a curlew. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You know, they see all sorts of life. And I'm not saying that those, those two species would necessarily coexist in the same place, but being able to actually reconnect the whole wonder and awesomeness of the natural world is really good for us, as well as being just a good thing in and of itself. I've got one last question for you guys. This has been such an interesting conversation. So what's your main focus at the moment and what's next in your pipeline in these coming months? Well, for my work at Rewilding Britain, I think what we're really focusing on is a campaign for wild and national parks. We really think we do need to see more wildness in our most precious landscapes. We think that national parks ought to be leading the way to a wilder Britain. Uh, you know, if we're going to you know, 70 years on from national parks being set up, they've clearly done a lot to protect those landscapes from being built over or being developed in, the, in an inappropriate way. But what they haven't done necessarily is do a lot to restore nature. And I think that should be the task that they are set for the 21st century, is to be at the forefront of bringing back nature and giving us more wilderness and more wildness. Wonderful. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you as well. Our next climate champion is Joe Gibbons, founder of landscape architecture practice J&L Gibbons. Joe is responsible for projects as varied as the heritage landscape of John Soane's Pitsicker Manor in Ealing to the Dalston Curve, a community garden created from a derelict patch of land in the interior of a block in Hackney, which before the pandemic was attracting 150,000 people annually. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Listening.